Hello, everyone. Good evening. Is this clear? Coming through? Great. Hi, I'm Amy Siskin, I'm president of a national women's organization, The New Agenda. You know me. <laughs> also happy to be here. And um, that was an amazing and powerful three minutes. And all of us living in the Trump era, the five of us had a chance to chat last week about this theme and, and shattering glass ceilings. And I think if we had this conversation in October, the panel you were about to hear would be a lot different than it's going to be today. Because no one can you know, forget the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump and the impact he has had on women um, already. And we're, we're 105 days in. When you look at, for example, um, legislation that impacts women like fair pay, he's already wiped away, ironically, a week before Equal Pay Day, um, an executive order that President Obama had put in to try to ensure fair pay. Uh, he's already been applauding uh, sexual harassment and sticking up for Bill O'Reilly, uh, which we took care of and we're still taking care of. Um, he has surrounded himself with less women and people of color than any president since Ronald Reagan. It's, it's particularly striking after President Obama. Um, there are no women of color in his cabinet, um, and there's only four out of 24 that are women. We see decisions being made right before our eyes as we speak about Trump care. Um, rooms of white men are deciding whether maternity leave should be covered. So these are all very real things that are happening in the first 105 days. So as much trepidation as we might have had when we elected a man who said I could grab her by the pussy and still get elected, um, it's been the first 105 days as alarming that it's only going to get worse. So I, th I think it's really important some of the topics we're going to discuss today um, to, to talk and have an open conversation. And we really want to incorporate all of you into the conversation, into the Q&A, and hear your thoughts and your experiences. Um, now, the other side of that, before I open it up and introduce our panelists, is the resistance. And um, again, I've run a women's organization for the last decade and been loosely involved in, in feminism um, for my 51 years of life. And I, I've never seen anything like the level of engagement in the resistance. Um, so it's extremely powerful. It's extremely promising. Um, when you think of the fact that Donald Trump did not accomplish anything legislatively in his first 100 days, you can thank the resistance. Um, people have been trying to get rid of Bill O'Reilly for a decade. You can thank the resistance. The president of Fox News was fired this week as well. So for all the negative, we have a reawakening um, of civic engagement and specifically of feminism that we really need to harness and um, take us for the next step as we move forward. So with that, uh, I'd like each panelist to kind of introduce themselves, give, give you a brief overview about themselves. And Teresa, do you want to start off? Um, OK, um, my name is Teresa Rebeck. I'm a playwright and a television and a film writer. Oh, and a novelist. I like to write fiction. Um, and I, uh, um, I, 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 you know, in the theater, I, I've had several plays on Broadway, uh, uh, you know, mostly in uh, the American theater play, plays, straight plays are less and less uh, present on Broadway now. Um, and uh, I started a women in theater award called the Lily Awards um, because women were being so consistently um, sort of, uh, uh, they, they 
Yeah, one and only. <laughs> so we're, I mean, we, we finally had to start our own awards to uh, so that uh, women across the board would be considered for awards during awards season. And uh, and uh, in television, I, I when I started writing for television, I was mostly working for um, for I did a lot of crime drama. I I worked for a show called NYPD Blue, and uh, I you know like every other uh, TV writer in New York, I've worked on Law and Order, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I created a show uh, called Smash about uh, backstage with a Broadway musical, and uh, and I was. Um, I went through a kind of tedious public shaming where they fired me at the end of the first season uh, without cause, and then the show blew up. And uh, and uh, and uh, it uh, it and then uh, they they there was a, a sort of a whispering campaign that went around about how crazy I was. That was why they had to do it. And then I couldn't get hired for a, you know I couldn't and I support my family. It was it was truly dreadful. Um, and uh, and I just wrote an essay about it for part of a book about uh, women and ambition and uh, it got excerpted online and so I I don't know I became <laughs> I became uh, famous and controversial again for actually talking about the stories that happened to uh, women in the workplace Hi, I don't know why I got the mic that's down so low <laughs> But I guess you can hear me. I'm Valerie Graves. Thanks. Yeah, probably so. Um, I am. I have been for much of my life an ad woman. I will say I'm really thrilled to even find myself in the company of the people on the stage. My book is actually a memoir of my life and career in advertising, which is a very uh, diversity challenged industry. Um, let us say five years ago, um, only 3% of the people who did the job, who do the job that I did uh, for two different agencies are female, let alone black and female. So I guess I might have something to say about glass ceilings. Um, by background, I'm from uh, industrial Michigan in the heyday of the auto industry. I grew up in Pontiac, Michigan, in public housing, and I was just this kind of um, precocious little kid who had a way with words. So I guess at about seven, probably everybody knew I was going to Harvard. At 17, I was a single parent working as a ward clerk in the hospital. And by 27, I was working in advertising as probably the not probably as the only black creative professional in the city of Boston. Uh, if you're interested in, in how I wound well. up there, <laughs> you can read the book. Um, but ultimately, after uh, spending the first seven or eight years of my career in general market advertising at big agencies like BBBO and J. Walter Thompson, et cetera. I crossed over literally to the dark side and uh, went to one of the longest standing African American agencies, Uniworld, where I was able to do advertising for a dream list of clients, uh, Pepsi and AT&T and Ford Motor Company and Bank of America. So um, that's really pretty much my story of going from the projects to Madison Avenue and encountering ceilings um, 
and they, you know, glass is a nice term for it because being born in 1950, black and female, I was aware of a ceiling uh, for as long as I can remember and of the um, injunction by people all the time, just have a light color, you know. Um, don't let anyone stop you are some of the earliest words I remember hearing. You're going to be somebody and don't let anyone stop you. So I was very aware of the fact that there was going to be some kind of ceiling. Thank you. Janina Braski, poet, philosopher, lover. If an opera singer can chatter a glass of wine with her high note, so too can a poet chatter a glass ceiling. I did it by affirming my own truth in my poetry, by exorcising my demons, by tearing to pieces the black legend that has demonized Hispanic culture since the Middle Ages, by declaring the independence of Puerto Rico, by opening the doors of the Republic to poets, philosophers, and lovers, I did it by affirming my own way of thinking, of feeling, of dancing, of singing. I did it by affirming that what sounds irrational or unintelligible is not necessarily unintelligent. It is precisely this kind of intelligence, this particular radiance in music, poetry, and philosophy that passes through the glass ceiling the way light and color pass through glass without breaking it. I understood what I had to do after I stood in silence for a very long time under the stand of American prejudices. I had to struggle with my patience understanding the other, while the other never had the grace to understand me, until out of my own voice came a trilling scream that transcended madness and explained the whole situation. Poetry is this screaming mad woman. Everything seems poetry. Thank you. <laughs> well, my name is Rita Mae Brown, and uh, I'm delighted to be back in New York City where I got my degree. Because, you know, the first resident of New York said, lead me not into temptation, I can find it myself. <laughs> and, and I always hope that is the truth. Um, but I, uh, I started the Student Homophile League in Columbia in 1968 with a young man called Stephen Donaldson at Westminster Old Maine, and then came down to NYU where I was in the Classics Department and the English Department and tried to do the same thing. And of course, you, you just hit a wall. Uh, and I was the only woman, really. And, uh, but it, 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 they were going to take my scholarships away. And uh, three people stepped forward to fight. My Latin professor, who was an Italian woman from Florence, one of my Greek professors, who was a Jesuit priest, and another Greek professor, who was the great Blue Mitrell. You can, you can Google her. And they said, no, you won't take this person's scholarship away. This is the United States of America, and we have the First Amendment, written, of course, by a Virginian, <laughs> James Madison. But as a writer, we live and die by the First Amendment. It's the fulcrum on which our entire democracy balances. You can't shut anybody up. It doesn't matter what they're saying. That's the point of who and what we are. 
And uh, they didn't shut me up, clearly. I'm here blabbing at you. <laughs> and um, I will fight for anyone, even if I hate what they say. I will fight because I recognize we have to hear it. No matter how unsettling it is, no matter how offensive it may be, we have to hear it. And there's two reasons why. These are your fellow citizens. How can you turn your back on them? Number two, I want to know who my enemies are. I want to see them. If you shut them up and they hide, you don't know who they are. And when the you-know-what hits the fan, you're going to get it in the back. I want to know who they are. So you just keep talking and you keep talking and you keep writing. And that's what made us who we are. And uh, you know what? This is, this is wonderful that this panel is doing it, but fun is wonderful. It's no surprise. But the next time somebody starts squealing and hollering about offensive speech, read them the First Amendment. Thank you, ladies. So we have an amazing panel. We have some great diversity and a, a great sort of backdrop to talk about some intersectionality of how different subsets of women are being impacted and are struggling with their own challenges to reach the glass ceiling in this new Trump era. Um, so I'm going to ask some general questions to the panelists to just kind of get us started, and then we'd love to incorporate you all with your thoughts to what you're hearing or, or that you came today with questions. So the first question more broadly is, and, and we'll start with you, Teresa, um, how has Trump taking office impacted women? And you know, we're, again, each, all coming with different perspectives, so whatever you'd like to share. on Trump, uh, so I know that's how it's affected me as I've been constantly uh, looking at it. Um, uh, it but and I, I think that it's also impacted women on, I, you know, I was having, I don't know if it's gotten worse or not. It feels sort of like it's so, I'm, I would be someone who says it so has exposed the raw nerve of how truly uh, misogynistic America has allowed itself to and uh, so, and I think that people, you know, I think that in the workplace, I certainly uh, always felt it and saw it to a sort of shocking degree. I'd come home and talk to my family about it, and I, you know, and, and then I'd talk to people who didn't quite believe me when I'd say what was going on, and I think that now we're looking at a country that at least some of us go, well, yeah, this is the way it's been going for a while, and so I think it's kind of great that we're, standing up, I think it's great, and speaking and marching, and that it's uh, more visible, I, I think, is where I'm at right now, just in terms of, I don't know if it's going to change or not. I don't know if it's going to get worse. I can't tell, because everything is so shocking. Well, I think that it's made the outrageous acceptable uh, to a degree that is just amazing to me. I mean, feminism... It's, you know, the, the reason I said that is because uh, I, it, it's been acceptable in my business for so long mm -hmm. that I, I'm a little, I'm actually probably the person who like goes, no, 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 this is what it's like. It's been like this. You know, honestly, when Trump showed up and started saying all that stuff, I was like, welcome to my world, you know, because I work in show business. That's all I meant. Yeah, right. I, I was thinking that too because <laughs> advertising isn't show business, but I did take a little side trip and work at Motown for mm -hmm. two years as head of creative services. Cool. And, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, mm -hmm. it was totally misogynistic. Mm -hmm. And then they had uh, the most rigorous sexual harassment training session that I've ever seen. They essentially said, if it isn't about work, don't even talk about it at all. Don't tell someone they look nice today or whatever. And then we left that room and they went right back to uh, circulating their list of who you'd like to fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> literally, um, this is what was going on. But I guess, I mean, in public discourse, uh, the outrageous has become totally acceptable. And things that on the face of them may not sound outrageous, but became outrageous sometime in the 70s when I was a young woman, like Donald Trump walking into a room with Nikki Haley at his side in a room full of cabinet members and, and I, I don't know, senators or someone, um, all male, and saying, does everybody like Nikki? You know, because if you don't like Nikki, Nikki can be replaced quickly. Mm -hmm. That was actually the UN, all the UN ambassadors from around the world. Yes. Oh my God. And that's her role. I, I yes. Thought, I, I was yeah. saying to my husband, who knows a few things about politics, can you ever imagine any president saying that about anyone, you well, know, well, male or did female? Did you feel threatened? Not at all. Yes. Be because she's that spoken that out about human rights. Yes. Yes, I think um, Well, whatever, but the notion of asking if you like someone. Yes. being the basis of whether they should remain in your job yeah. or not. I can't imagine that being said about anyone but a woman. Does everybody like Nikki? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just amazing. But I mean, more than that, I mean, we're, we're all familiar with his comment about grabbing us. At one time, that would have been a disqualifier for even being elected. Mm -hmm. you know. And yet, in the world that we're living in now, it isn't. I'm not in a workplace in the way that I was for years anymore. So I can't say how things have changed there, but I think there have always been things that were said mostly among the guys uh, when the women weren't in the room, um, except for the woman who kind of became one of the guys. There's been a few years like that early in, in my career uh, that now they say with impunity. So the question is, how has Trump taken office? How yeah. it's impacted him? Yeah. Well, my answer is, it has made them mad. <laughs> they want yeah. to tear him to pieces, like the Maenads tore Pencius to pieces in the Bacay. <laughs> they want to grab him by the balls and tear him apart. <laughs> They're in a state of Bacchic frenzy, out of their fucking minds. <laughs> he has sent the police to grab them by the pussy. But they say, grab us by the pussy, grab the bull by the horns, and rip his balls off. This bull is nothing but a bull cheater. Grab him by the horns and rip his balls off. Send one to Trump Tower, the other to Maragarago. That, that's poetic justice for the Furies. Now they are playing golf with his balls at Maragarago. I wish I could tweet while we were doing this. That down and tweeted that. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful to be in a panel with a woman that knows the myths. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm less concerned with Trump than how we got here. And I think we got here beginning in the French Revolution. That's the beginning of modern times politically. And it was when a group of people who were lawyers essentially decided they would remake the world. They had the plan, they were smarter than everybody else, and they could do it. 
and the result was the guillotine. So since the 1780s, uh, everyone in Western culture looks at the future in the shadow of the guillotine, and yet it still keeps happening. It's the politics of determinism. The French Revolution was, well, this is the wave of the future. If you're not with us, you'll be swept aside. It's what the Russians said. Trotsky said, well, if you're not with us, you'll be on the trash bin of history, and he got an ice pick in the skull. Uh, what's a National Socialist did. You're, you've got to be, it doesn't matter whether it comes from the left or the right. It's the politics of determinism. And in our country, the left believes in the politics of determinism. They believe that this sweep that we've been on for the last 40 years will go on forever because it's morally just. But morality has nothing to do with power. Power is always amoral. It can be used for moral reasons. It can do good, it can do evil, but it is always amoral. You read the Iliad, the way you achieve power is the same as it was in the Iliad. The tools are just different. It never changes. So uh, particularly liberals have been on this ride. Uh, the ride just ended. Why did it end? Because the leadership of both the Democratic and Republican parties, the difference being, of course, the difference between syphilis and gonorrhea, um, <laughs> were tied into their ideologies. Well, we're going to win. We're going to roll over. We're right. They, could, they, they, they did not know the people anymore. They were so divorced from who and what we really are. Trump really has no ideology. All of the information that he made use of was available to the leadership of the Republicans and the Democrats. But they were so arrogant and out of step, they never saw it. So here we are. So the real lesson is the pendulum swings both forward and backward. Don't fall in love with your ideology. Take a step back, get emotion right out of it, and look at it cold. Right or wrong, look at it cold. You'll know where you are, and you'll know what you have to do. And what you have to do may be cruel. But if you want to be free, you have to do it. So this was a really interesting interplay. Thank you. And I just want to summarize a theme, which is a, a transformation, a hope, an awakening. I, you know, I, I sort of feel as if, in my own experience, that the only time we really have change, real change, for people that are oppressed, and frankly, women in many, you know, as, as, a, as a whole, are still, by many measures, oppressed, the only way that we see any sort of movement forward is a movement back and a realization and awareness, which we were talking about in the workplace, that this shit has been going on for so long, but now it's in the light of day and we're examining it. So the next question, we're gonna give one more question to the panelists, then we're gonna invite you all to, to chat with us. And Valerie, since you picked up on the notion of grab them by the pussy, what does it mean for us that we elected a man who said that out loud and 53% of white women voted for him? What does that say about our country? And, and uniquely white women. Um, so uh, what, what, what do you think the impact is or the, the uh, message? I, I think that it says something more about women uh, than it does about the country. You know, that women, uh, we have a difficult time valuing ourselves. And I yesterday was reading a thread uh, that was about you know, most women suffering sexual harassment of one sort or another, and there's a big argument going on with at least two or three women who are saying, this has never happened to me, and you're exaggerating it, and so on and so forth. Um, and 
you all who are arguing are denying my experience of being someone who's never experienced this. Um, and I thought, I don't, I don't know what to think about that, but that's the kind of woman who could vote for a Donald Trump no matter what he said. People are like, oh, he said it. Doesn't mean that he goes around doing that. Um, and I remember seeing one woman with a shirt on at one of his rallies who definitely looked like someone that no one would ever want to grab, believe me, that said, Trump can grab my <laughs> And that, that is illustrative of what I'm saying here. I think that in general there are just, there's, there's a large percentage of women who simply feel on a very deep level inferiority to men subordination to men as just a kind of natural state of being um, and as just one aspect of, oh, we've got this strong man in power now. It's like all right with the world. We've got a, a pussy-grabbing man um, in the White House, and so everything's going to be all right because he's going he's to keep us safe. It's like a crab. I could walk backwards only to make America great again. As Heraclitus said, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same water and he's not the same man. One cannot make America great again because it's not the same country and we're not the same people as we were before. New waters are flowing, new waves of migration are coming, and one cannot stop the fluidity of things with a big, fat, ugly wall. I cannot become who I was, but I can take a few steps backward without looking back, only to gain momentum to leap forward into the air and stay there without foundations, building castles in the air to achieve my higher standards of expectations. This is part of my poetics of the athlete of the heart. But I'm a farmer, so I deal in a different reality. And um, individual rights are worthless if you can't eat. So to me, the key is monetary policy. It's not really Trump. It is monetary policy. It's the flow of funds. If you can't get the money to start your business because you're a woman, and you couldn't back in the 70s, they would not give a single woman m money or anything. Or now hard. you can get it. It's hard. You know, it's like 40 pages, but you might be able to get it. Um, you can't uh, – uh, uh, the Dodd-Frank has uh, altered your ability to borrow, and your ability to borrow is the ability to magnify your profit if you know how to do it, which is how you live. The point is not that anyone should be hungry in this country, but that everyone should have the opportunity to make a decent living that you want to do. Male, female, doesn't matter. Gay, straight, doesn't matter. You should be able to eat. You should be able to feed your family. So the Dodd-Frank has reduced this, thinking they're going to take an attack on the Wall Street bankers, who are so ahead of them. Um, you now can only borrow on your actual earnings. So your whole net worth is wor worthless, as well as your ability to work. In the old days, you went in and your banker knew you, and you did it on a handshake if you were a man. And then it began to change, and in the 80s, you could do it on a handshake when you're a woman, and now everything has changed. This means you're always behind the eight ball. So the person you pray for is not our president. The person you pray for is Janet Yellen, 
and you pray that he keeps her there because, she, because the Federal Reserve is the bank of the bankers. So if they need money, that's where they go to get it. So the money supply will be tightened or loosened according to the Federal Reserve, which is generally a political decision. She has sidestepped a lot of it and kept on a course. So if we get ahead, it seems to me it will be because many of us can pay our bills, can get a decent job, can get money in our pocket, and that gives you a little bit of extra room to fight. And you always have to fight. My mother had to fight. My grandmother had to fight. My uncle was in Okinawa. You know, you fight. We survived the, the Good Friday Massacre of 1622. Fighting is part of living. So if we just keep focusing on this man, we're going to miss the real issue. The real issue is always the economy. It is making sure your people can eat. And I don't want that taken away from you, no matter how boring it may be to talk about it, in a sense. It's your future, particularly those of you who are young, because you don't know what the old days were like. And it was a lot easier in some ways. It was a lot harder in others. But your future is being taken away from you. May, may I respond to that a little bit? Oh, I just want to give her a chance to answer the question. Did you want a chance to answer the question first on, on what you describe the situation as there is for women? Uh, you know, I actually I think this folds in with what Rita May was saying. Uh, because uh, I think that, you know, I have to say I, was, I fought hard for Hillary. She's really a, such a hero of mine. And it, it's been very painful for me to be constantly asked, well, what about the 53% of, you know, of white women? I'm like going, you know, uh, fuck them. You know, I didn't, I, 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 you know, I'm not, the, I, I feel like weird, like, you know, why am I, why, I think the way we, uh, we uh, categorize people into different food groups is not helping us as much as it, you know, as it is dividing us. And I don't feel like I'm re responsible for those, for those people. I'm actually related. I come from Ohio. I come from a family of Catholic Ohio Republicans, quite frankly. And I do. I have spies in the enemy court. You know, <laughs> my mother is there, and I go, Mom, what? You know, and uh, this because she's quite liberal, and she says, and I believe her. Um, I believe she, or at least I believe she's right. That you know, so much of this. That you know, because I was raised Catholic, it didn't. So there's a lot, a huge Catholic, and I listen. I, I was raised ultra Catholic. I'm not going to say anything bad about that church on a on a certain level, but it's a very authoritarian church, and they got it in their heads that you know they had to. Uh, you know, this abortion thing is really. They stand in the pulpit and they tell everybody, you have to vote for the person who's going to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's it. And because it's such an authority, and some part of me feels like. There's a huge authoritarian uh, swath of, of America where they're just voting the way they're told to vote. And I think that that's partially what happens to women. And that then what we have to look at, I, I agree with Rita May about this as well, that we have to look at larger systemic things. There's something that's in the water around the, around, um, the way decisions are made, the way people are put into office, the way economics works, that's very, very anti-woman, and we still haven't solved that. And so it's it's just as possible for women to be misogynist creeps as it is for men to be that. You know that it's this has been true for so so long. You know, so anyway. Yeah, except that <laughs> for for a woman to be misogynistic, she also has to be self-hating. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yes. I, even 
if we're not self-hating, I think very often we're self-doubting. And the point I wanted to respond to that Renee made is you're absolutely right about economics and power, but it, when I look at my own life, I realize that I spent about at least eight, nine years trying to convince a man that I worked for who really owed me a lot in terms of the success of his company that if I were a man, I would be his successor rather than going out and getting some money and starting my own business, uh, which I could have done and later found out from a man that there were some men who would have backed me. But I don't really so much blame the, the system as myself for that. I really uh, just did not see myself in that role of CEO. I thought I was a, a great chief creative officer and somehow I didn't belong at the helm of a company, that I did not have uh, the head for business or, or whatever. But it was, it was for me, uh, in retrospect, a personal choice that I should have done that. My husband said to me, do you want to buy that agency? And I, it just, at the time, struck me as just kind of being out of left but how many women did you see at the time running big businesses? Some, some. I, I was lucky enough to work yeah, I don't on the blame Clinton you. campaign <laughs> with a woman named Linda Kaplan. I blame the system. I don't who blame went you. on to, to own her own agency and do very well. And I remember very well sitting next to her and having her tell me that she was terrified of change, you know, and saying to her spiritually, you know, you can't fear change because change is all there really is. Uh, but she was the one who went on, you know, to borrow the money, start her own agency, rise to the top of the industry, whereas at the time we were talking, we were pretty much at par. You know, so I, I think that you are right about the system, but I also think that what I said about women and the way the spiritual deficit that we feel uh, with regard to our status in relation to men is something that we have to become more aware of and more aware of, of pushing forward, pushing through it, and doing those things that uh, we don't necessarily think of as being important. Thank you. So I'm wondering at this point, does anybody have a question or please? That's wonderful. All right, we can end it here. <laughs> Does anybody? Sorry, I can't see too well. Great. Please.
So I, I just, I'm going to throw it out to the group in a second, but just statistically, the um, young folks, thankfully, since the election have shifted the most quickly and by the largest percentage. Um, young people, 18 to 29, and women. Um, there's a Pew Research poll out today that asked by age and by um, education level and by gender, how do you feel about the country? Are you optimistic? And um, women have gone down from 43% to 29%. And the biggest pocket of that is young people across the board, uh, male and female. Um, men have actually now more optimistic since Trump took place by six points. So, you know, he won and he brought this message. But I, I'll, I'll throw it out now if, if anyone has thoughts about the young generation. I, I certainly do, but... Uh, does anybody have anything they want to add about I the young generation? I have a story about that. I have to say, I mean, because I, uh, look, I've lived the, there, I think there's a lot, a lot, to my life, uh, in my life, there was a lot of the misogyny that was going on in my culture, you know, in, uh, you know, I was on television shows where, honest to God, I, I, I you should just go write my book, read my books to see, like, the hideous things they do to women. The, uh, you know, in these environments, and uh, my son, I have a 22-year-old son who's graduating from college this year, and, like, he lived it, every moment of it with me, and then was going to vote for Bernie, and I, like, literally said to him, you know what, if you vote for Bernie, you have to give me that Gloria Steinem tote bag back. <laughs> I had the coolest, <laughs> you know, I, I, he, like, says he voted for Hillary, but, and I think he did, I don't know. <laughs> You know, I can't hold him to it. I didn't get the tote bag back. But, you know, it was interesting to me how easy it was for people to buy the, um, I felt it was a deeply misogynistic narrative that was being presented by the mainstream media. And, and you know, that false equivalency that was going on. And even now, mm -hmm. you know, it, like now that Hillary is, I think, very bravely and cogently, I've always found her to be, a powerful speaker so that when people go, oh, she's awful, I think, what are you talking about? Yeah. She's so clear and mighty and what a role yes. model for us. And, um, and uh, you know, every time she speaks, it was sort of like the witch hunt began. And I ended up feeling, especially near the end, I was like, this is too much we're asking. I felt like, I didn't feel like she let us down. I feel like the country let her down by allowing that degree of um, attack to go on and to watch her standing there and taking it, I think it became mystifying to the larger discussion. Yeah, and I just want to add, I, I have a college-age daughter as well, and, and the day after the election, her friend said, this is the worst day of our lives since 9-11. And I think a lot of her friends were not engaged politically, and I think a lot of people who were Bernie people kind of went along, um, you know, with a wave and a feeling, um, or were just not really that involved and just didn't want to. One of my daughter's friends said, I didn't want to be controversial. Um, but I think watching their rights get stripped away, you know, watching things that I think even people of my generation took for granted now being up for question again has re-engaged your generation. So when we talk about the two sides of the coin and all the bad stuff that happened, but all the promise that comes from it, guess what? You might lose plan B. Tomorrow, if, if you're gay like I am, you could lose, you know, your rights in the, in the workplace. Religious liberty is back. Um, you know, it's going to be legal to discriminate against gays, against who knows who else is on the on the mat for next. Um, and, and your generation, rightfully, and thank God for the rest of us, feels very strongly about these issues. 
and things that you've just taken for granted, that you have friends that are straight, gay, and trans, and every other letter in between, and that's been fine. Um, or that you could take plan B, or you could get abortion, or you could get a job. So all of a sudden, it's like, wow, these things are not going to be there for me. And, and um, I think that's really, again, to our credit, and, and my organization's um, main um, main um, component that, of that we that we intersect with are college and millennial women and I see an awakening like I've never seen like college women are like not having this and so there is going to be some impact from that starting in 2018 when y'all get to the polls and vote um, does anybody else have anything to add about yes um, I am not really objective on the subject of Hillary Clinton because I worked for Bill Clinton in 1992 and since then, since being on that national advertising team, I have just been amazed at how this woman has been mischaracterized, mm -hmm. misrepresented. It's like you're, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, their own vote, but I can tell you from my experience, the person, the picture that they have painted is not this person. And it began back then, remember when Hillary was supposed to be the one who wore the pants? No, you know, I've, I've <laughs> been in that house and seen it. And actually, um, the candidate that we know now, and actually a lot has transpired since then, was surprisingly a person that I could look at and still see that really smart woman at law school who still couldn't believe that she was the one who actually got Bill Clinton, whom everybody wanted. There is that aspect of Hillary Clinton's character, and that, that was one of the first things that I noticed. It's like they're painting her as being the boss of that house, and that, that is just so far from the truth. But almost everything that was said about her, and especially you know, toward the end when it got insane, where she's running a child rape ring from a- Pizzagate. A, a Pizzagate. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it was just- But karma has taken care of that one. Alex Jones is now, yeah. yeah I, I was just <laughs> appalled, I was appalled at that, and I had the grandson who's your son's age, um, who was enthralled with Bernie, and I have to say that I just felt like I've seen this before. <laughs> I've been there before. Um, idealistically, it's wonderful, it makes you feel great. Some of the stuff wasn't practical, some of it as, as a very leftward sort of leaning person, I didn't really agree with. I don't wanna pay for Donald Trump's children to go to college. I want college to be free for those who need college to be free, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I, I just felt that Bernie was uh, an appealing person and I felt you know that his, his heart was in the right place, but there was no way that I could get behind him. And a lot of the kids at those rallies, a friend of mine said, oh, they, it's like they're going to Coachella. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was a happening. And a lot of the movements when I was that age were like <laughs> Coachella as well. So I'm not entirely putting that down, but I do know Bernie was, Bernie was a thing, you know, and Bernie was fun and Hillary was all substance. And anytime she would talk, I just think it sounds like she's already the president. You know, she so much knows what she's talking about. She's so brilliant. She's so the person who should have been the leader of this country. I felt the same way yesterday. Well, there again was a woman who, a woman who stood by her man, who cheated on her publicly and humiliated her. And uh, she did the right thing for her child, I would think. But here, I have never been so happy in my life 
than during the Monica Lewinsky affair because at last I was morally superior to someone. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it, it was absurd, it was insane. And this business about gay people losing our rights and they put us back in the closet. Listen, if Michelangelo had been straight, the Sistine Chapel would have been painted basic white with a roller. You know, if they get rid of us, they will die of boredom. There is nothing they can do. You know, we're going to have to expand the graveyards. So go ahead and try. That's what I say. Just go ahead and try. Oh, you and Gianna, Zunia. I think, I think about the misrepresentation of Hillary. Yes. We, we have to look at real, the reality of things. Like Gertrude Stein said, a rose is a rose is a rose. Because the same misrepresentation we do to metaphors and to symbols, like the misrepresentation of the glass ceiling. You look at a glass ceiling and it's so beautiful <laughs> because they are beautiful. I mean, the light comes through, music can come, come in, you, you can trespass it uh, with your thoughts, with your, with your sound. And, and then they transform that reality that is beautiful into an ugly reality. And I have seen this in the United States a lot. We transform higher standards of expectations into standards of living. And the standards of living kill all the imagination, kill the creativity of things. So that's what I have to say. Thank you. Please. Can I just, I, I want to parse your question a little bit differently. I, I think democracy can be consistent with capitalism done properly. I, I think what we're experiencing now, and I'm a little bit of an expert of this categorizing, is authoritarianism, which was sort of the um, video that we started out with. And I think that is what we need to be afraid of, that we take, we get rights removed from us that make expression of self impossible. And that was sort of the theme of Pan American, but I think that to me is, is more what we have to fear, that we're being, literally from the time the carrier worker spoke out and he tweeted his name and he was getting death threats, people are being silenced, the media is being silenced, but everyday people are being silenced. So, but anyway, I'd love to hear your, your all's perspective. I, I, I wanted to say also about uh, how is it that in other countries we have women elected as, as president like in Germany or in England. We're one of the last civilized even countries. In, yes. Even in Puerto Rico, we have had women in Chile. What is this? What, what is the problem? What, what I want to, I think it, it has to do with culture. I think it has to do with capitalism. I think it has to do I with do power. Too. 
I, I think about this all the time because uh, because I um, when I started writing for the theater, it, uh, you know, uh, the the singular voice of the writer w is w like sort of the basis of of uh, you know you're the playwright you write the play and then actors come around and director and uh, audiences gather and but it's the singular voice of the writer that be is the seed of the event, unless you're building it, you know, but that's basically the idea that I was working from. And when I moved into television and film, um, basically you don't own your work anymore, they buy your work from you. So like in theater, if you write a pl play, you own it, you can rent it to people, you know, people can pay you a little bit of money to do it, you don't make very much money. Um, in uh, film and television, you sell your, your, your script, you s they own it, right? And so you're, and the whole system of TV and film is uh, is uh, capitalistic. So you know there are these companies. There's the production company, the network. So there's a whole system of executives and um, and producers, and you know, um, and what they all care about is what their is keeping their job, and what their <laughs> boss thinks. And so information comes, you know, it's extremely hierarchical. It's, um, it's a feudal system, really. And there was one point in the middle of all this where I thought, you know what, when I grew up, when people were starting to inform me that I didn't manage up properly, that I didn't have the right skill set, which is basically about sucking up so th and making sure your boss knows that you think he's a genius and <laughs> that everybody around him usually, you know, but that the, 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 the capitalism creates institutions that are feudal and hierarchical. So we, I, you know, I, I, we, I was born into a post-enlightenment democracy in Cincinnati, Ohio, where, you know, we were all told growing up, because we're all Democrats with a little D, where we are, everyone is equal. One person, one vote, we are, that's what it means to live in America. But then the, the, f the structures that basically control American culture are feudal structures. Mm -hmm. And so the people who do well and who model power for the – are people who understand Machiavellian uh, um, uh, power games, you know. And so and, – and in those things, it was basically in those, those, um, those institutions, um, women are perceived as like the bottom of the totem pole, like difference is perceived as hierarchical and, and, and how well you play that game, how well you manage up, how well you elbow the person next to you, that is how you climb. And so you, we end up with like the worst people in America yeah. running everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, I would like to start talking about something uh, admittedly knowing that I have drawn no conclusion but it's amazing to me that almost no one is talking about it in terms of our entire system. And that is the disappearance of work. Oh yeah. It's like, where are we? Jobs are disappearing before our eyes. You used to go into a bank and see a roll of tellers. Now you see an ATM. The same thing is happening at the supermarkets. In every factory, um, you have uh, Uber that owns no cars. Uh, where people are, are making very little money. Our entire system is changing, and it's alarming to me that neither the president nor anyone with a loud voice is really talking about that very much, but it's happening very rapidly. 
And I don't know how we as Americans uh, can deal with that. I was in Cuba last year, and a person in Cuba can say one thing to you and spin your whole head around. <laughs> our, our tour guide was just talking. She said, well, as you know, in Cuba, we don't pay enough. <laughs> the idea that people live in a country where no one has to pay rent is not a perfect, I don't even want to use the word perfect, I know it's just a different system. But there are other systems in which things are handled differently and I think that in, in this country right now, when we're not thinking about the fact that all of our jobs are going away. You think about it if you're from Pontiac, Michigan because you've seen it happen before your eyes, but it's happening so rapidly that this is not a pie in the sky kind of thing. So capitalism is gonna look different. It's probably not likely to become any less futile, you know, because the money is gonna become more and more and more and more and more concentrated at the top. But the implications for the average person in the society are enormous. Okay, thank you so much. So we, I just want to get some other questions in because our time is running short already. Please. Well, I, I want to address something you're saying from the first part of your question and the populism and them being not far from a different family of the same sort of thing and, and um, the feeling as, as a woman and watching my friends of color that it, it, the ideas of Don, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were very grounded in white male first and the issues of white and men and everybody else, it, even more recently Bernie said, well, if we have to give up abortion rights to get people elected, well, no. I mean, the Democratic Party is, is women. So I think they're, they're not, in some ways, far off. And it was, it's the sublimation of women. It's the sublimation of people of color. And to me, that's really troubling on both sides and, and something I can't support on either way. But I'd, I'd love to hear, does anybody else want to pick up on that? No, I want to pick up on the disappearance of work. Because I think it's wonderful that work disappears totally. I want it all to disappear. <laughs> I want all. You all be lovers. I, I, yes, I want all of us to become redundant, because then we will understand 
the usefulness of the useless and the uselessness of the useful. That's what I think. <laughs> I can speak to work just briefly. I can, I can give lots of work, but nobody knows how to do it. And nobody will do it. Nobody wants to get their hands dirty. Nobody wants to be out in the field in 95 degrees with a 90% humidity or back out when there's a snowstorm and I'm there. I set off all the alarms when I go through security because my body reads as metal because the muscle is so solid <laughs> and they can't believe it. So they have to you know, do the whole thing. And I keep saying, I'm a farmer, I'm a farmer. I have to use my body and then they look at my age. Oh, that's not possible. Yeah, yeah, I throw 60 pound bales of hay almost every day. Um, but I can't get anyone to do it. I can't get any one big young person to do it. Everyone's better than that. They just don't want to do it. They look down on it. Well, they look down on me. I mean, Betty Friedan called me a redneck. They called me a dumb redneck. Um, so I look at that and I think, we have gotten so far away from our reality. Do you want to pay $20 for a tomato? <laughs> if you all don't spend a little bit of attention on agriculture and monetary policy and all that, you will. And, and, I, and, and if I we keep deporting, if we're deporting people left and right that are doing these jobs that Bernie, uh, excuse me, not Bernie, Donald Trump's people don't want. But yes, we're deporting people in the middle of the night that yes. are doing those jobs. It's a complete and total yes. mess. And, and I look at that and I think everybody's too good to sweat now. Yes. Well, related to what you're saying, I've had a lot of conversation uh, with my husband who was just is a retired editorial writer, so I'm sorry to hear people like Seth. Um, <laughs> about the fact that people like Hillary, to some extent like myself, were so invested in the meritocracy and in the embrace of upward mobility that really a lot of the people who voted for, the type of people who voted for Donald Trump and then black people who didn't vote for him and other people of color, but who had jobs like in the place where I grew up and simply wanted that to continue mm -hmm. are the forgotten people, the people who didn't necessarily want to go to college. Why do I need to go to college if I can work at General Motors and make $50,000 a year and have the gold standard of health insurance, and oh, don't let my wife get a job at General Motors too. We're rolling in it. Those are also those are the forgotten people, and it's it's just now starting to be framed in that way. Mm -hmm. The coal miner um, who is a staunch Trump guy and thinks he's going to bring back coal—that's all he wants. He's mining jobs back. There there is a huge swath of this country that was not interested in being part of the meritocracy and they were forgotten by those of us who succeeded you know, under that system. People and we have like been Hillary rebuked. Bill We've been rebuked. Yes, yes. Um, it's, you know, you're talking about the meritocracy and this and that. A big part of the problem is the media. Fear sells. The media has no interest, and you can speak to this too. I work for Norman Lear, so I was on the, you know, I was on the entertainment side of it, but I saw enough of the news side, they're there to get advertisement. Fear sells. So you are sold fear 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. You're sold fear about candidates. You're sold fear about cholesterol. For Christ's sake, some of you are 20 years old. Who gives a crap about your cholesterol? <laughs> You're fine. You're just fine, you know? But 
they're making a fortune giving you nothing but negative messages. Exactly. There's no accountability. At least the person that gets elected has a minimum of accountability. So these talking heads who are making millions of dollars can say whatever the hell they want. Yeah, yeah I think that is one of the, I'm, and we'll get to your question one sec. Yes, please, yeah. I think we're witnessing a transformation now with Twitter, with other, I mean, we're mediums where people have lost faith in the media with this last election and tuning out those voices and finding new voices. Yes, please. I'm so interested in what's happening at Berkeley. <laughs> I think, you know, I think... Uh, gonna say this. I think that the sin of America, the thing that we don't look at is civil war. I think that we we never feel for that and we've not learned to talk to each other. And I think that there was a moment after the civil war where we almost came together and because of all the wheeling and dealing that happened right after that, it, it split us ever more. And I feel like that's that's coming up rising up again. Actually I, I think that people are angry and don't want to listen to each other, don't want to come together. I think they want to fight. I can speak to that yes. if anybody <laughs> wants me to. Yeah. Or, or you all can go before me. Um, we had three opportunities to solve the economic basis of slavery in our nation. The first one was the Constitutional Convention. We couldn't do it. The fight was so extreme over representation and when we finally got the Connecticut Compromise, which is the Senate, and the people were shocked. Plus, they had just been through the failure of the Articles of Confederation and were facing enormous war debt, which nobody knew how to pay. And North Carolina script, they didn't even have a printing press in North Carolina. They wrote their money out by hand, was not worth anything in, North, in, in New Hampshire. It was, a, it was a mess that you really don't get taught about in school. We got through it. We gave birth to the Constitution. We are the only nation born in the Enlightenment, which is both our strong point and our weak point, because we expect people to be reasonable. And by now, I think we all know we are not. Okay, we then had an opportunity during Monroe, because unless you drooled on your shoes when you walked, you made money during Monroe's. It's the era of good feeling when you look at what was happening. It was a fantastic time to be an American. And we had some more problems. And we got in the Mexican-American War and this and that. And I, I would just like you all to know, those of you that are New Yorkers, that in 1820, New York had 40,000 slaves. They don't tell you that in school, do they? But New York found a terrific way to solve the problem. New York did it in steps. New York bet that older slaves would be willing to stay slaves so that the economy would not be terribly disrupted 
in order to make the time to make the transition, and then their children would be freed. They, they solved the problem. Yes, somebody had to give up their freedom, but they were giving it up for their children, which most people will do. So it was brilliant, and that's what they did in the Caribbean too. But a man named Thaddeus Stevens was, became a senator in, of Pennsylvania, and he wanted to destroy the South. Literally, he wanted to destroy the South. And then there was a senator from South Carolina who wasn't much better, Charles Cleaney, who just wanted to get away from it all. So all of our opportunities vanished in this polarization and hatred. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> Two sides not talking to one another, people beating the drums and creating hysterica, hysteria over something that could have been solved in a humanitarian way that saved what came later. What came later was four million people get on trains to come up here in 1865 and there's not one agency to help them. There's not one agency to take people who knew nothing about our institutions or how to deal with them. Just, hey, you're free. You're free to starve. And it was a nightmare. And they took the jobs away from the Irish because the Irish were the bottom of the white ladder. So this creates a whole new set of hatreds. Okay, Ulysses S. Grant gets elected. You, everything you've ever been taught about Ulysses S. Grant is a crock of pop. <laughs> he, was a, he was a good president. He cared a great deal about the slaves. He didn't start with that. He started to preserve the Union, which is what many of the Unionists did. And then as he got in the middle of the war and saw the death toll, remember, 750,000 Americans died in that war. That would be 7 million today. 2% of our population died in that war. He realized the only way this is going to be solved permanently is we have got to end slavery forever. And he committed himself to it. Sheridan didn't, others didn't, but he did. So when he became president, he made a real effort to make sure things would get done better in both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, Frederick Douglass, if you ever read the writings of Frederick Douglass, he was not all that impressed with Lincoln. He said, Grant is our friend. What happens? Grant serves two terms. It was a mess. You know, you, you got a nation that has lost a huge percentage of its population. The South mourned its dead. The North never mourned their dead. The, the North has never emotionally accepted what happened and everybody lost somebody. You get Rutherford B. Hayes and Rutherford B. Hayes, 1876, stopped all of the programs to help the former slaves. And it took a hundred and some years for us to wake up. You look at our history and there it is. We made terrible mistakes. We kicked the can down the road and we're doing it again. Americans do not want to face anything until it's a crisis squared. And then we're magnificent. Why do we always have to wait? Do you I'm glad you ended on that note because as much as I have fallen in love with you in the course of this panel, I can't buy that argument about slavery. As a descendant of some of those people who got on those trains and came up north and didn't know what was awaiting them, but damn it, they were free. The worst day of a free person is better than the best day of a oh, slave. Oh, I believe that. And I was brought up by people who knew that in their hearts and believed it, and so we just, we can't agree on that. But Valerie, thing. what gets me is the white people just turned their backs. Can we go back to, I just want to go back to your Berkeley. I, I have some thoughts on Berkeley. And before Berkeley happened, my, my daughter is a student at Middlebury, and they had that big demonstration when Spencer spoke. And so I have very mixed feelings on that. I think there are some things that were beyond, like when we went the New York Times with the, you know, the columnists that wrote about um, there not being 
global, you know, climate change. And, and Spencer's background, before we get to Ann Coulter, um, are things that were not rooted in fact. It, he was a racist, he was a misogynist, and so I, to me, like, allowing certain speakers to come on campus is sort of like, are we talking about is the earth round? And do we, I mean, so I, I think it's really important that they come, and I think it was really important what happened at Middlebury until the end when it got real rough, that the students all came in and they chanted. You know, um, and, and you know, you're, you're a homophobe, you're a racist. You're mm -hmm. So I, I think it's important that those speeches happen, and I think it's important all those students learned how to demonstrate. So with Ann Coulter, um, there's also the experience of, of the rally that happened the week before where a woman was, I don't know if you saw the video, it was pretty widely spread around. Um, a white supremacist basically punched her and knocked her to the ground, and I think there were some concerns about safety. So I, th I, th I think the fact that we're having these discussions are really positive. I believe personally that these people should be allowed to speak. And I believe that hopefully there's a lot of people outside demonstrating and there's a lot of, if needed, police to keep them safe. I think it's as important for your generation to learn how to demonstrate peacefully. Because that's what's happening now. Like, look at all the freaking women that showed up to this march. Yeah. And look what's happened since. And we're still marching. I mean, civil disobedience is where we move ahead. This, this young man is. Yes. I want to let this young woman in the front. You've been waiting patiently, and we only have time for one more question. So you're. Racism in our country? Yeah, I, I have some very strong opinions on that. If that's okay, I'm going to address that. I, I think a lot of the people that voted for him are the same people that believe Obama's a Kenyan. 
and um, you can tell them from every point of day they believe Obama wiretapped Trump. Um, there are some people that um, in our country uh, have very deep prejudices against people of color, against women, against gays. Um, the fact of having eight years of a black man followed by a woman is just like threw off people that, you know, that we have a re-rise of white supremacists all over the place now. So if you, if I, I think what we've done is bring it into the light of day. I think we have to be careful how our media coverages these white supremacists and whether we're legitimizing people that are, you know, holding rallies in D.C. and having conferences to talk about um, whether Jews should be exterminated and whether Muslims should be allowed in this country. I mean, it's, once you hate, I mean, it's all just, you know, we're a conversation like what it is on that day. Um, there are 37% of our country that are white, male, Christian, and straight, and they just don't want to cede control to the rest of us. Um, so I, I, I happen to believe, and I think Trump knows that he was, forget the economic message. I don't buy, I buy that to a certain extent. I think a whole lot of his people didn't like women and don't like people of color and don't like that our country has moved from 1950 and that white men returning from World War II didn't just step into jobs and their wives were at home waiting for them to come home. And we then had these people of color rise up and we had these people migrate in the, you know, Indians and Muslims and God forbid. I think that's been overwhelming and all of a sudden it just kind of boiled to the top. So the good news of that is we recognize it and now we can start to work to deconstruct it. But I highly agree with you. I, th I don't buy this worker stuff. I, I, I buy it to a certain extent. I think racism played an equal, equal role here. But I, I want to give everyone else a quick I remember there were a lot more of us, just you know, where we were geographically distributed didn't work for us. There are more of us than there are of them. And to that person who said Trump only believes in capitalism, I believe that too. I don't even necessarily believe that Donald Trump is a racist. I just think that he found racism a useful tool. Well, you know something, the only, the only mutual acquaintance that I know you have is Russell Simmons, and they were friends. And I know other black people who know Donald Trump, but I, I don't think he has a soul. <laughs> don't, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Um, and if you find racists useful to achieve your goals, then you're just as bad as they are. But as far as a deeply held conviction, I don't think he has it gets um, back to power is a moral. Power is a moral. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, first of all, y'all, thank, thank, I have learned a lot, and I'm delighted to listen. I would actually like to shut up and just listen to you guys. <laughs> and then I can't stand it. I have to say something. Um, okay, this is what I have to say. Here's the good news. I think it takes three generations to make significant social change, and we're really only in the second one after the first wave of feminism, after the first wave of freedom for people <coughs> of color. We're really only in the beginning of the second generation. I will not live to see the promised land, I know that. But I know if you do your job, if you stand up and fight and just talk to people with respect, even if they think differently than you do, talk to them with respect, we're gonna get there. Look how far we've gotten. We never had an inquisition. We never had a dissolution. We never did what other countries did. 
We've yeah. done some bad things, but we've never <laughs> done. We're about to go into authoritarian role, but do you want to add any closing some. comments? Go ahead. I want to say something about race, sex, and religion. Yes. Everything here is race, sex, and religion. Race, sex, and religion. When you when you have to fill the blanks in a university, <laughs> they ask you, "Are you Hispanic?" This this is race, sex, and religion again. Yeah. As long as we define people as straight or gay or black, or all of these definitions, we will have racism mm -hmm. because it is based on these definitions that are wrong. We should look at human beings as people without these kind of definitions. That's what I think. Thank you. <laughs> Teresa, do you have any final words to close us out? I don't think I could do any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well thank you all very much. Wait, this wait, was a quick thing. Thank you. What she's saying is don't let your oppressor define you. Exactly. Yeah.